Here's what we're going to talk about tonight. Last week I talked um, a little bit about this idea of what drives us to relationships. And it was kind of a sobering talk, because I talked, especially at the beginning, about how difficult relationships are to pursue in our world and our culture and some of the things that have made it so difficult, some of the kind of the wounds that we bear that have made um, relationships difficult. Uh, The point I want to make tonight really is that how we relate to God is always connected to how we relate to other people. It's a simple point, but it's at the heart of the biblical teaching on relationship. You were created to relate to others within the context of a perfect relationship with God, a loving relationship with God where you felt fully loved and fully known and fully accepted. You will never taste that, this side of heaven, to be fully known, fully loved, and fully accepted. But that's what you were made for. And every other relationship that you were to have with other people was always to be in the context of this kind of relationship with God. But when sin entered the world and that relationship with God was broken, it spilled over into every other relationship. And it generally made us either care too much about our human relationships or not enough. But it definitely put things all out of whack. So the the point is how we relate to God is always connected to the way we relate to others. I had... um, like two stories that I want to tell you that help make this point. The first, a friend of mine who does RUF at another college, and I won't tell you where, uh, was telling me about a freshman that he met this uh, right at the beginning of the semester. And he said, why is it that the freshman, now this isn't true at Belmont, okay, so this is not a crack on all freshmen. At his school, he goes, why is it that all the freshmen, whenever I sit down with them for our first meeting, it feels like they have to tell me their resume? They have to tell me their resume. And he goes, I was talking to this student in the cafeteria Earlier, it was last week, I'm talking to this kid, and somehow he manages right at the beginning of the conversation to tell me that he is one of the world's greatest jugglers under the age of 18. And before my friend can do anything, the kid picks up the chair that he's sitting on, and he starts balancing it on his chin, waiting for the whole rest of the cafeteria to stand up and applause, which eventually they do, because it's pretty impressive. This kid's like bouncing this chair on his chin, at which point he puts the chair down and he goes on with the conversation. And my friend said, do you think this kid needs to know a little bit about his identity in Christ? Do you think that there's some connection between what he understands about God and the way he relates to other people? Of course there is. Of course there is. Don Miller uh, has a book, Searching for God Knows What, a really excellent book. I really enjoyed that book. And he talks in there about this lifeboat analogy. When he was in elementary school, and he was asked this question, or they had to do this little exercise, where, you know, you imagine that there are these people in a lifeboat, and there's, of course, always a pregnant woman, and a doctor, and a lawyer, and a politician, and you. And you have to come up with reasons why, if somebody has to be pitched out of the lifeboat so that it doesn't sink, What reason will you give why you should be able to stay in the lifeboat? What what is it that you think, what is it that you think means that you should stay in the lifeboat and the other people you know would be cast out first? We're always going around trying to somehow promote to people and communicate with people, why is it that I matter? Why should I be the one who gets to stay in the lifeboat out of all these other people? There's something 
there's some answer you have to that question. There's some answer you have to that question of why you should be able to stay in the lifeboat. What is it? It has everything to do with what we're talking about tonight. You see, God created us to be other-centered. He created us to be in relationships to serve and to glorify Him and to love other people. But sin has done this number on us. Martin Luther said that sin has brought about the inward curvature of the soul. The inward curvature of the soul is what's going on in our lives. And it can't help but have a huge impact on our relationships. Now, the Bible's way of talking about this issue, what we're going to talk about tonight, is idolatry. That when you don't worship God as He should be worshipped, when you don't trust God, you can't just stop worshipping, you can't just stop trusting something. Something will inevitably take the place that God was made for. And it will always show up in your relationships. Now, um, this little chart is a good way of getting at that. Take, take this little chart out. I won't go through all of these, but I want you to understand it so that you maybe can, can take this and think about it. Maybe talk about it with some of your friends. This would be a great thing uh, to talk about. Here's what the chart is trying to get at. There's always something that you need or that you feel you have to have. When, when, you don't, when you're not getting the kind of approval and love and satisfaction from your relationship with God that you were designed for, something will have to fill the void. And so we always seek all kinds of other things, things that we should have gotten from God, like safety and security and peace and hope. Always something else will seek to fill that void. And generally, it's you. You try to count on you to fill that void, except it's kind of funny how it happens. You count on you, but you count on your ability to get other things to work for you. So if you're a people pleaser and you find it very difficult to say no, you're really trusting in you, but you're trusting in your ability to keep people loving you and liking you all the time. And and if that's what's going on, it will show up in anxiety because it's really difficult to keep everybody liking you. There's so many people that you got to text every day. There's so many people you got to touch base with. And you got to know who said what to who. And it's just so difficult, right? You get ulcers and you're full of anxiety. So every one of these kind of what we call idols, every one of these things that we pursue apart from God will always, always come back to bite us. And that's what this chart is about. Look at the first one. If what you're living for, because you don't feel you're getting attention or approval from God, you will have to get it somewhere. And if you're living and you're trying to have your relationships with other people fill that void, in other words, if you're living for other people's approval, there's always a cost that you're having to pay and a cost that you're willing to pay. That's the second column. If you're living for attention and approval, you're willing to sacrifice control and independence. And it's so interesting because if you're living for control and independence, you would never sacrifice control and independence. And you may look at some other person and be like, I could never be like that. I don't understand why this person, they always say yes, and they don't have any sort of control over their life. Well, that's because your idol is different. But the person who's living for control or living for approval and attention can't say no. And they're willing to not say no. They're willing to say, I will give up my freedom if only I can get 
approval. If only I could bask in the approval of another person, I'd be willing to give up my freedom. It's, it's a cost that I'm willing to pay. But there's always a nightmare that you're afraid will come to you. And for this one, it's, the, it's rejection. Now, rejection is never fun. But if you're living for the approval of others, rejection will devastate you. It will always affect you more than it really should. Your reaction to rejection will be out of proportion. It's always a clue. If you have sort of an emotional reaction that seems out of proportion to reality, it's probably connected to your idol, to what you're living for. Now, this is interesting. There's another way to try and get at what what are the idols that I'm living for is this next column. What do other people experience who are in relationship with you? If you're living for approval and to get their attention because you don't feel that you're getting it from God, others will feel used, minimized, and smothered. Which means you may not be very aware of the cost that you're having to pay, but you may be very aware, maybe some friends have even told you, you know, it's difficult to be in a relationship with you. You just smother people. And you may say, huh, I wonder why that is. I wonder what's going on in my heart that that I just, time and time again, that happens to me. I had that. I I remember, you know, just periodically friends would come to me and say, you're just too intense. I was just so desperately lonely that I thought like the best way to have people love me was just to be everything for them. You know, and and every couple years somebody would say, you know, I've been your friend, but you're just too intense. Sometimes that can be a clue for you what's really going on. And then what's the telltale emotion? Your life will be marked by this last category. If you're living for approval, you will be anxious and needy. Let's, let's do another one. How about self-sufficient, the third one down there? This one is, uh, is pretty common. People tend to be one, either the first one or the third one in a, lot of, in a lot of ways. People tend to live either for independence or for overdependence. But that's the next point I'm going to get to. But look at this. If your self-sufficiency, if what you really want, and this is more mine, if what you really want is independence and time alone and people to leave you alone, um, you're willing to sacrifice intimacy and mutually helpful community. You wish you could have community, but you recognize that if you're going to have real community, it's going to cost your independence, your freedom to do what you want, when you want. It's going to cost your free time. And you're not willing to do that. So you're willing to pay the cost of not having the kind of relationships you long for because you're more committed to independence and time alone. Your nightmare, of course, is the dependence and neediness of others. You're always kind of got your radar out making sure that you're not becoming friends with people that are really needy. You're really worried about needy people and you want to make sure that they stay at arm's length and you surround yourself with people that are kind of like you that are independent but like to get together every once in a while just to kind of hang out so you can pretend you're not really so lonely, okay? What do others experience? Well, other people around you feel ignored and unappreciated. And most people that know me feel ignored and unappreciated. This is always like, it always shows up. What will be your telltale emotion? You'll be cold and distant. You don't want anybody to become too dependent on you, and so you want to not even give them a doorway into that part of your soul. So take this chart. You might find it helpful in thinking about what are the idols. And here's, here's the thing. When we reject God's love, our relationships become either too important or not important enough. 
And, and you see this actually back in Genesis 3.16. If you go back to this little outline, I put this thing on there. In the curse that God um, gives to the woman, the, he talks about what's going to come into your life now that you've rejected me and sin has entered the world. Here's one of the things that will show up in your life. And he tells the woman this, that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. But actually the Hebrew there is ambiguous. It could be translated, it will rule over you, or he will rule over you. And what's interesting is, if you look at relationships, not just women's relationships, everybody's relationships, both of these dynamics tend to go on. Either you will have a desire to rule over somebody, or you will have a desire, your desire for this person uh, will be for them to rule over you. In other words, people tend to be somewhere on this continuum between isolation and being committed to staying safe, and staying free and staying independent or over-dependent, feeling immersed in relationships. Now, both extremes are, are a big problem, but we tend to be somewhere on this continuum, and actually, every relational decision we make moves us towards one of these two poles on this continuum of either isolation or immersion. And what happens, you see, is that this produces all kinds of problems in relationships. Because wouldn't you just know it, people that tend to be really committed to immersion tend to always want to hang out with people that are committed to isolation. And it produces all kinds of mess. And it really is about idolatry. People have different idols. This person, the isolation person, values safety over everything. And if they have to give up real relationships, so be it. This person over here values relationships over everything. And if they have to give up their identity and everything of who they are, their self-respect, their freedom, everything, so be it. And we're always kind of going back and forth between those two things. Here's the way it works out. Um, this, the, the guys that did this little chart talk about it this way. I think it's really helpful. Uh, the, most relationships fall into one of these three categories. See if you recognize these. The frustrated relationship. This is where one person is moving towards isolation. And the other person is moving towards immersion. And this seems to happen very often, doesn't it? The isolationist person is always feeling smothered, and the immersion person is feeling rejected. This per- like what they want out of the relationship is not the same thing. But what neither of them wants, unfortunately, is for God's glory to come. This person is committed to being in charge of everything and being safe. And this person over here is committed to sucking the life out of people that they're in relationship with. This person is content to have no life and to try to live just on breadcrumbs and water, right? And these two people often get together because this person over here says what this person really needs are the kind of relational energy that I could bring to, the, to this relationship. And this person over here, you know, is kind of excited by that because it feels like it's a taste of life, that they haven't known, but after a while they begin to feel like, oh, that's a little scary. Usually happens, what, about two months into a relationship, right? It all seems wonderful at first, but then you begin, as it starts to get a little scary, as it starts to get a little out of control, then your idol starts rearing its ugly head, and you have to face this issue. Will I continue to move forward in a relationship that may bring pain into my life like I've never known? And again, like I said last week, unless God's glory is why you're moving into relationships, eventually you will decide that most of your relationships are not worth the cost. If the reason you're moving towards relationships is merely because you're lonely 
or merely because you lust, eventually you'll decide that the relationships you're in are too difficult and they're not worth it. But God is calling us to something bigger. So that's the frustrated relationship. The second is the enmeshed relationship. This is when both people are these immersion kind of people. And um, Jack Miller, a mentor from afar, I guess, of mine, has passed away now, but he used to talk about it this way. He'd say, this kind of relationship is like two ticks on a dog with no dog. It's a lovely image, isn't it? Two ticks on a dog with no dog. In other words, they're sucking the life out of each other. But there's really not much to suck life out of, is there? The enmeshed relationship. It's, it's two people who are living to be really living for other people. And what happens in this relationship is the emotional roller coaster. Because you're so dependent on this relationship for life that you're always having to kind of keep track, how are we doing today? And you have constant DTR talks, right? Like every couple days, you're wondering, how are we doing now? Uh, are we doing okay? You know, the relationship becomes the issue rather than the other person even. The enmeshed kind of uh, relationship um, always, always um, leads people to spending all kinds of time in dealing with little offenses because everything, you, everything bothers you because you're so dependent on this relationship working out that every little thing becomes huge. The third is the isolated relationship where both people are moving towards isolation and each of them, you know, is really quite aware of the dangers of a relationship and they're just not sure they really want to have that. This is what a lot of guys' relationships are like. <laughs> you know, I want to I be able to know I can have somebody to call up and go to a movie on Friday night, but I really don't want to open my heart up. I really don't want to share what's really going on in my life, the isolated relationship. Well, what's going on in all this is idolatry. Idolatry is behind all of this stuff. And it gets down to this. Relationships are always going to be difficult when we worship something other than God because relationships with other people were always intended to be lived in the context of a relationship with God where God is above all other things. I I love this quote. I think I I, uh, sent this out or posted it on the wall for REF tonight. Whenever the things that you want become more important than God, your relationships suffer. Even when you make your relationships more important than God, your relationships suffer. I think that's exactly right. It's exactly right. And that's what idolatry is all about. Idolatry is the Bible's term for the way that we worship something other than God. And you may say, well, why wouldn't I want to worship God? Well, the problem with worshiping God is he just doesn't obey our orders. He doesn't do what we want him to do all the time. And it seems that there are all these other gods who are willing to sign up for the job and are offering and and promising that they will give you what you want when you want it, and you'll be able to control them. Idols always offer the illusion that you will be able to get from them what you really want. And so, you know, you always have sort of a faraway idol. This is the little thing that's on the back of that chart. You can look at this later. You'll always have a faraway idol, the thing that really is your core thing you're living for. Maybe it's approval. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's control. And then you'll have near idols that that, that you see more easily, like grades. See, you can be, you know, really, really, really um, committed to your grades, 
and sacrifice everything on the altar of grades, but you may be doing it for a very different reason than another person. You may have a vi- your faraway idol may be control, and you've got your life perfectly planned out and getting perfect grades so you can get into the grad school you have planned so that you can get the job that you have planned so you can live in the neighborhood where you have planned. You've got it all figured out. And so the reason you're so obsessed with grades is because of your plan and because you've got control issues. But somebody else may have approval issues and they don't want to disappoint their parents. And so the re- you, know, you may think, well, I've got, a, I've got a problem with, you know, man, my grades just seem more important than anything in my life. But the reason you're doing it, you may not ever understand the reason you're doing it. A lot of times we're very conscious of these near idols, and, and, and we understand, like, this is really important to me, and maybe it's too important to me, but we sometimes don't understand why it's so important to us. What I hope that we understand a little bit after tonight is, is a little bit more about that, because idolatry is really the key to understanding so much of who you are, and it's also the key to healing is to understand this and to come to repentance. So let me turn the page over and let you know a little bit about how this works out. Um, under every sin, every sin is the sin of making God into an idol. Let me explain to you how this works. I'm not going to read that quote. You can read it later. It basically says is about this. Martin Luther actually put this well. He, Martin Luther said that before you break any of the Ten Commandments, you first break the first commandment, right? Thou shalt make no, no idols, no other gods before me. We first imagine God to be something less than he is. Why is it, why is it that you, well, why is it that you betray people? Why is it that you let people down? Because you don't believe that God is big enough for God is big enough for what might happen if you keep your commitment. And so you have to basically kind of, you know, jump from commitment to commitment, try and juggle all these balls in the air. You may think, well, I just have a problem with commitment. And I know I'm always letting people down, but, you know, I'm trying the best I can. But you may never realize that your problem with commitment is definitely connected to what you think about God. And you don't think that God is big enough to sustain you through difficult commitments. Well, God could never want me to be unhappy. He could never want something good to not come into my life. I better break my word so that I can be uh, available for this opportunity over here. It's connected to God and what you think about God or how little you think God is. It's always this way. God is always connected to every other sin. We don't generally think of it that way. We generally are always trying. I, I love this. Like I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll talk to students and I'll say, well, how are you doing spiritually? And they'll say, well, you know, I, I've got this. I, I've been ha- really having, struggling with this. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling with this issue. But I'm, I'm really, I'm working on it. And I always love to say, well, what exactly are you doing to work on it? And usually the answer is, uh, I don't know. I'm just feeling bad about it a lot. <laughs> it's like, that's not really working on it. What, working on it means trying to understand what is it that I've forgotten about God, who he is, and what he's given me in Christ that's making this seem so reasonable. Why does it seem so reasonable to me to live for other people's approval? Well, only if you think that you need that approval. And why would you think you need that approval? Because you don't think you'll get any approval other than that. 
But if you understood that God, the creator of the universe, welcomes you into the holy of holies and says, come boldly before my presence, look me in the face and, and be able to say to me, Abba, Father, if you understand that, and that begins to connect with your heart, well, gosh, the approval of other people just, it really changes. It really doesn't matter as much, right? We have to connect our sin that we're aware of with what we've forgotten about God and who he is. That's what this is getting at. And, and, and another point that's really helpful is to understand your fears are so wrapped up in this. I, I like Tim Keller said one time that if you pull up your idols by the roots, you'll find your fears clinging to them. If you pull up your idols, you will find your fears. Why? Because generally, if you follow a person's trail of pain in their life, you will find core commitments that they have made to never be able to be hurt like that again. I'm never trusting people again. I'm never going down that road again. I'm never doing that. I'm never going to open my. I'm never going to try new things and be embarrassed like that again. All of those, all of those fears, all of those, those painful moments connect to your idols and these core commitments you've made to take care of yourself. Basically, to live like an orphan who has nobody to care for them. Do you remember Jesus as he was getting ready to leave? The disciples said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will send another comforter to be with you. But we don't believe it. We live like orphans all the time. So your fears are so important to understand. But not just that. What you need to understand is the way God brings healing. And I don't have time to go through all this outline. That's all right. I, I, I tried to flesh it out so that you can look at it more. But here's, here's the deal. I want us to look at Isaiah 44. Uh, if you jump out here. God, the good news that I proclaim to you tonight is God comes to do battle with our idols. And he does it by fighting on two fronts at once. Two, two fronts at once. And here's what he does. God is committed to exposing how pointless and worthless and empty your idols are. If you're, if you're, committed, if you're committed to getting people to like you, God will deliberately mess that up. And you may, you may have experienced this. And at that point, you can either be really angry with him or you can say, thank you, Lord, for showing me the foolishness of thinking that I could get life from keeping everybody liking me. God will show you how silly it is to trust in these idols. He'll use ridicule. He'll use scorn. Isaiah 44 is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible where, you know, the, the, the Isaiah talks about how we put our hope in things like the person who worships idols is like somebody that takes a tree and cuts it down. Half of the wood he uses to roast um, his meat and eat. And he says, oh, look, you know, I'm warm out from the fire. The other half, he fashions it into a God and bows down to it and says, you're my God, save me. Now, you may say, well, that's really ridiculous. And maybe you've seen, um, uh, what was that, that movie with Russell Crowe, the um, gladiator movie? You know, and he's got his little, little gods, you know, that he prays to. You know, you may say, well, that's ridiculous. But listen, the things you put your trust in are just as ridiculous. You put your trust in your ability to, 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 to manage your life and to know what's going on. You put your ability in your work or in your talent or in your beauty in your fame, your reputation, whatever it is, it's just as ridiculous and it's just as empty and it will let you down. So God comes to show you what you're trusting in doesn't work, doesn't work. But here's the glorious good news. What you're trying to get from this idol 
you already have. Are you trying to get security from your idols? Think about money, the way we use money in our culture. We use money for three things. For security, for peace, and for hope. You know, we talk about being financially secure. Having enough money that you'll be able to withstand whatever might come. There's a lot of people that are wondering if that really works so well today, right? We use money to to peace. If you have a lot of money, you don't tend to ask as many questions about what you're doing and why you're doing it. You don't tend to have as many um, conversations with yourself about, am I really doing the right thing? No. We tend to inevitably think, if I have a lot of money, I'm blessed and God must be pleased with me. So we use it for peace, to try and bring peace to our life. But we also use it for hope. I want to have money so that I will be able to have a future, a future that's better than my present. That's right. So money is, you know, definitely, this is why Jesus said you can't serve both God and mammon. Money, but it means more than just money. But you can't because both of them are functioning as things that will bring peace, hope, and security, things that the gospel is meant to bring, and things that if you're a Christian, you already have. So here's the thing. Thomas Chalmers was this great old Scottish Presbyterian. He talked about this phrase he called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. What it means is you will never get over one love until a new love, a more beautiful love, comes along and dries out the first one. You know that you'll never get over some boy or some girl you had a crush on until a new one comes along. They'll always have a part of your heart. It works this way with idolatry. And the point of worship, and it's why we pray this way sometimes, it's why we sing some of the songs we sing, is that Jesus would become more beautiful and believable than trusting in my ability to get people to like me. You see how empty and vulnerable that makes you? Putting your hope in anything besides God will always leave you incredibly vulnerable, and you know it, because if anybody gets near that idol and threatens it, you will lash out at them. Right? But God comes and says, look, let go of this thing in your hand that looks so beautiful and looks so solid and looks so trustworthy. Look at me. Look what I've done. I died on a cross for you. Which of your idols did that? Your idols demand all kinds of things from you. But your idols will never die for you. Right? Look at this, Isaiah 44, the little passage that I wrote here. Talking about the idolater. The idolater is trapped, Isaiah says. He feeds on ashes. I put, I put, it's on the back of the outline um, under number 5, Isaiah 44. The, the idolater feeds on ashes. What an image. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is an amazing thing. God does not say, quit chasing after idols and maybe... I'll accept you back into my heart again. No, he comes to the one who is trapped, who can't save himself, who can't even look at the thing in his right hand and say, this is a lie. Because let me tell you, idols will blind you and bind you. They will lie to you all the time. If you're putting your hope, if you're putting your hope in other people's approval, your idol will lie to you and say, if you don't have that, you're going to die. But it's not true. It's not true. God comes and says, 
return to me because I have redeemed you. I'm not waiting for you to fix it. I'm not waiting for you to quit this. I know that you can't let go of this unless you understand how great my love is. I have swept your offenses away like a cloud. When I look at you, I'm not disgusted. Even though everything you do is disgusting, I'm not. Because I look at you and I see the righteousness of Christ, the one who lived and died in your place. You don't have to get the approval of other people. You have my approval. It's what you were made for. You don't have to be in control. I'm the one who's in control, and I love you, and I gave my life for you. Right? Do you understand? The key, the key to actual deep repentance is to understand idolatry and to understand that what you're trying to get from your idols, God has already given you. Therefore, worship is our problem. We worship all the wrong things. But worship is also the solution. God says, come unto me. Jesus says, come unto me. All you are heavy and weary laden, I will give you rest. Right? Romans 2.4 says that God, the kindness and mercy of God was designed to lead to repentance. I know so many of us come from churches where you were taught that hellfire and brimstone was what God used to try and turn you to repentance. But that's not true. I'm not saying that hellfire and brimstone isn't true. But I'm saying the kindness and mercy of God is the only thing that will allow you to let go of your idols and embrace him. Uh, it's like I used to tell Cooper when he, was, when he was probably four and his little brother Isaac was two. And if Isaac would grab something from him, um, I would tell Cooper, you can't just grab it back from him. It's going to be World War III. He's going to absolutely freak out. But here's what you can do with a two-year-old. You can hold up anything. I don't care what it is. You can hold up a shoe and shake it in front of him, and he will quickly let go of what he took from you, and he will take that shoe or whatever it is you shake in front of his face. You know what? Sometimes God has to do that to us. We're saying, no, I can't let go of this. And he says, look at my son. Look at him. Cast your eyes upon Jesus, right? A couple, this is it. Gaze upon Jesus and him crucified. It's the kindness of God in the flesh. Do you know that? It's this wonderful verse in Titus. Paul says, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Jesus is the kindness of God. But Jesus suffering on the cross is also the best place for you to see the mercy of God, the strength of God, the commitment of God, the perseverance of God. It's all there. Look at that. Look at Jesus. As Jonah 2.8 says, this is an amazing verse in Jonah 2.8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. See, it's not just that you're doing a bad thing. You're missing out on what God made you for. He didn't make you to trust in all these things that will let you down. He made you to trust in him who will never leave you or forsake you. Isaiah 30, 15 puts it this way. Repentance is rest. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And as Jesus himself said, Come unto me, all you are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest. Do you understand that repentance is rest? The only way you'll see that is if you believe that it's not up to you to let go of these things and wrench them out of your hand. It's, 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 your, it's your calling to look to Jesus, to collapse upon him. And these other things will no longer, you won't need them. 
Now, this is not something you do once in a big moment. We'll have everybody come down forward, and we'll renounce our idols, and we'll all be gone, and we can go home and be fine and have wonderful relationships from now on. This is an everyday, ongoing thing. Every day, you need to, you know why you need to read the Bible every day? Because you need to see the love of Jesus every day, because you don't believe it's as big as it is, and neither do I. Do you know why you need to be with Christians? Not just so that you can be safe from all those crazy pagans. No, it's so that you can be around people who hopefully will remind you about what's true. That the love of God is bigger than you believe right now. You need to have people in your life that will tell you, look, don't live for this. God's love is bigger than you believe, right? You need people like that in your life. Let's pray together.